Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Amanda Borchel Dan here. Today is Thursday, December 8th, and I'm here with our political correspondent, Tal Schneider, and our U.S. correspondent, Jacob Magid. Hello to you both. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hello to you both. Quite the night last night for Israeli politics. Tal will fill us in on the latest coalition agreements. Jacob is here to talk about the unusual roundtable that was convened yesterday at the White House. But first, a short break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. Tal, it was quite the nail-biter last night uh, with very late-night signing of a coalition agreement with Shas. Tell us, what did they actually receive in the agreement? Right, Amanda. Shas is the fourth party to sign those agreements. Actually, it's the latest. It completes the entire round. Uh, now Netanyahu only needs to complete the you know, tapping of the ministers from the Likud. And other than that, he's done and ready to go. Shas received um, you know, quite a bit the interior ministry and the health ministry. Both ministries, very heavy portfolios, will go to the minister, uh, you know, the chairman of Shas, Arya Derry. Let me just remind you that Arya Derry cannot right now sit as a minister because he is convicted in a tax evasion felony. Uh, he was convicted about a year ago. And in order to have him going back to this ministry, the new coalition will have to change one of the basic clause that ban someone who was convicted serving as a minister. So the changing of the basic law will have to take place uh, by a majority of 61, of course, before the swearing in of the government. This is very complicated. They don't have much time. The clock is ticking. Until when is the clock ticking? What is the deadline here? Okay, so Netanyahu has until this Sunday to announce I was able to form a government. And from that uh, point, he needs to swear in the government, I think, within seven to 10 days. But he can ask the president to give him another 14 days. The problem with that is the president should give those, you know, 14 up to 14 days for someone who still needed to, you know, do, do negotiation. Here, Netanyahu doesn't want to do more negotiation. He only needs the further time in order to change the basic law. So there is a huge question here, even it's, it's a little bit of a constitutional and legal question. Can the president extend the timing, not for a negotiation, but only for changing of Israel's Sami constitution? Uh, obviously, the future oppositions uh, with minister, justice minister, the current justice minister, who is going to sit in the opposition, Gideon Saar, you know, claimed yesterday that 
that the president is not allowed to do that. So this is the tricky part. Still, they need to change. If, even with that, even with this extension of 14 days, in order to change the basic law, you need some time. This upcoming coalition was not even able up to this time to even replace the chairman of the speaker of the Knesset. So one is connected to another. And I suppose they will do it. No one is saying that there will not be a new Netanyahu government is what you're saying. Yes. So Shas also received uh, some other ministries. Uh, chiefly, the most important for us is their religious affairs ministry, which means they will control all of the nomination in the chief rabbinate and the, they will control all of the nomination in local municipalities, rabbis' uh, nominations and kosher uh, agenda and also a, a, a big portfolio with respect to conversion. But it was actually the Ashkenazi United Torah Judaism that came out with an interesting religious-driven statement yesterday in which they asked for the barring of the women of the wall at the Western Wall. Tell us a little bit more about that, please. Right. So, you know, there are the coalition agreements and there are the ministries. This time around, Netanyahu split the two. Usually when we sign coalition agreements, the coalition agreements contain both what jobs each party gets and the content of the agenda for the next for the next government. This time around, Netanyahu split this. He, he, he asked his partners to just sign on what they call addendum or appendix to the agreement without writing the agreement itself. So we don't have any content for the agreement. For example, as you mentioned, in the United Torah Judaism, they signed up for those ministries, um, you know, the housing ministry and the chairman of the finance committee. But this is an addendum to the agreement, but the agreement itself was not even, not even, not just signed, but not even discussed yet. So we hear from comments coming up, out from the United Torah Judaism that they submitted uh, around 100 points or maybe even more for the content of the coalition agreement. Among them, one of them is to have the women of the wall barred from entering or maybe not barred from entering, but get um, to be sanctioned with um, some sort of fines or punishments for doing whatever they, you know, for, for praying, uh, for, um, you know, entering uh, the Torah into the women's side of the of the Western Wall. This doesn't mean that the Likud agreed to that. There's so many issues. One of them, obviously, is the women of the wall. I, I can't tell you at the moment what's going on with that. Okay, thanks, Tal. Jacob, let's turn to you. Yesterday, the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, who is Jewish, convened an anti-Semitism roundtable at the White House. First of all, this sounds quite unusual, isn't it? Um, yeah, this is not something they've done on this specific issue before. They have held several roundtables um, against the backdrop of um, domestic violence and other um, issues right right as they're kind of more relevant. So right now we just had in the past couple of weeks former President Donald Trump meeting with uh, Kanye West, having dinner, hosting him for dinner with Nick Fuentes, so a pair of Holocaust deniers. And then Kanye the next week goes on Infowars and goes on this pro-Nazi rant or tirade. Um, so there was this uptick in the anti-Semitism scene online and and in other ways that the White House wanted felt was important to address. So Emhoff hosted this roundtable and invited about a dozen Jewish leaders to attend. I think it kind of showed how this issue for them is not just a foreign policy issue. They have a, an ambassador, Deborah Lipstadt, who is tasked with addressing these issues abroad. But there's also a recognition now that this is something that needs to be handled at the domestic level as well. 
And Emhoffen, his opening remarks, condemned anti-Semitism, talked about how there's no both sides, two sides to this issue and how it's very impersonal to him being the first Jewish second gentleman and something that he's really proud to identify as. Um, and then they kind of went around the table, uh, each of the different Jewish leaders, picking off of where he gave this very personal um, speech. A lot of the other folks at the table did the same, talking about how this personally this issue has personally impacted them and how their communities are impacted as a result of anti-Semitism. And then each of them, for the most part, from what I spoke with a couple of people involved, talked to about how they want the White House to adopt this whole-of-government approach to the issue, meaning that all the agencies will work together on this. A couple of questions for you, Jacob. Who else was at the meeting? And isn't it kind of a preaching to the choir approach if it's only Jewish leaders who were there? Yeah. Um, who else was at the meeting? Uh, Jewish organizations from across, I wouldn't say the political spectrum, they're mainly mainstream organizations, there, but definitely from various religious backgrounds, Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, um, Hillel, ADL, uh, National Council for Jewish Women. So definitely a lot of mainstream groups that are dealing with this now. And yeah, you could argue that it was preaching to the choir. I think what was also interesting for me to, was to hear that no real policy proposals were made. And this seemed kind of shocking, especially because this is not the first time the White House has discussed this issue. They had this United We Stand summit in September, which talked about it wasn't just anti-Semitism, it was hate fuel violence, but Jewish leaders like the same ones in the room were invited to that one as well. The White House has also condemned this issue before. They have this anti-Semitism envoy that might be mainly foreign policy focused, but also comments and tracks domestic foreign uh, anti-Semitism. They've had regular meetings with these Jewish representatives before. Um, these Jewish representatives constantly speak about these issues and discuss them. Um, so it was kind of interesting how, at this point, there's still no idea of how to handle this at the policy level. I think when I spoke to Sheila Katz, who's the National Council for Jewish Women CEO, she said that policy matters are more for Congress to deal with. And if there was a simple answer to this, we would have thought of it by now, which is a fair response. Um, a couple last things. It seems like the reality is the best that you can really do in, in light of this, this spike of anti-Semitism is to condemn and condemn forcefully and quickly and ostracize those who do, especially given the light that the former president of the United States is now dining with some of these folks and this party's having a hard time condemning him. Uh, maybe there's more security funding that can be added to it as, as we've seen in, in to Jewish groups as we've seen in the recent years, and maybe more some sort of legislation on social media or, or limiting the, the activity on social media that the, the, the networks can do. Just my last controversial or cynical take, I think this roundtable at least somewhat was kind of a checking of the box for the White House and allowing everyone around the table to feel good about themselves for doing for having this discussion. Okay, thanks, Jacob. We'll go to a short break now. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Tal, we've talked about the 
coalition as it's shaping up. Let's talk about the shaping up of the opposition. I understand there's some activity planned for the weekend. Right. So the opposition, um, they're not yet opposition, they're still in government, but obviously Yair Lapid, Benny Gantz, uh, Gadi Eisenkot, Merav Michali, they all suffered such a blow. Um, they are totally dysfunctional up to this minute, you know, hardly talking to each other, blaming each other. And they were able, for the first time since the election, to sit together this week, not them themselves. They sent chairman of the parties to coordinate a work for this weekend for demonstrations um, in the, um, you know, Israel bridges, what we call the, the bridges uh, protest. When you're saying bridges, of course, just for our listeners, uh, many Americans would call them overpasses. So it's uh, these bridges that are on top of roads. And so what you're saying essentially is that people can see the signs and see the people from both sides of oncoming and going traffic. Right. As you know, in Israel, we have huge problem of traffic jams. So it's a very effective way to, um, you know, get your messages because people are standing in lines on the highways and you, then you are exposed to those people who are on the overpasses and you get to see lots of signs and flags of the country. So so they are going back to this. Uh, it's uh, apparently more effective than gathering together at one location and having people driving uh, one or two hours to a huge demonstration. The de- those kind, those type of demonstrations are spread out. They can, you know, they can take place. Two people from, you know, the northern part of Israel could stand on, could stand on a overpass or in the southern part of Israel. This is what I hear it's going on at the moment. Other than that, we don't see much of a cooperation between them uh, and. I think uh, overall, Israel's left liberal secular uh, portion is uh, in a very, very bad situation. Okay, Jacob, turning to you and speaking about progressive, you were at the J Street Confab Sunday through Tuesday, I think it was. What came out of there? Yeah, I think a lot of the talk was about how the Biden administration is going to be working with this next government. And Secretary Blinken um, spoke on Sunday, it was the keynote address. And ahead of that speech, the White House held a meeting on this very issue of how they're going to engage with some of these far-right members from Itamar Ben-Gvir to Batalis Matrich, or possibly not engage at all. Um, but no decision was made according to the, an official I spoke with. And from that indecision, there was a, the birth of a line in the speech that got the most attention, which was when Blinken said that they'll be judging the next government off of its policy, not based off of its personalities. Um, on the other hand, Secret- uh, U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, from from an official I spoke with, is not currently planning to meet with Ben Gvir. That's his plan right now, though he also at once planned never to visit any West Bank settlements, and he's done that since. But Blinken, in his speech, that's the line he used and then tried to present this balanced approach that the administration is still trying to strike with, his, with its Israeli-Palestinian policy, um, which wasn't really that welcomed by the crowd. Contrary to Blinken, who was not that welcomed by the J Street crowd, save for a couple of lines, there were seven Democratic lawmakers who spoke separately in different different plenaries and panels where they were presenting a much more um, no-nonsense approach to the Israeli government and calling out these new far-right members and saying we're not going to be willing to accept some of these policies that they're pushing forward. And that they were, I think that they're going to be demonstrated what the Biden administration is likely going to be facing in the coming months, 
where they're going to have this pressure from from their own party. In the past, they've been kind of been able to withstand it. But Biden told Netanyahu during the, the May 21 Gaza war that this is really having an impact. And there was the FBI probe that was recently opened into Shirin Abu Akhla's killing. That was as a result, according to an official I spoke with, um, as a result of congressional pressure. And then just the general discourse and what they're bringing to the table, what they're bringing to the floor in Congress is based off of this uh, worldview. Um, so it's going to be something to watch for in the coming months. Jacob, what would you say was the temperature in the room in terms of support for Israel in general at this J Street confab? Yeah, I think definitely, like, if you judge it based off of applause lines, it's for a more harsh stance. But then if you listen to and speak with some of the folks that are there, a lot of them do come to the table with um, a very personal story of how they, their connection to Israel started, and they're adamant that they, a lot, some of them define themselves as Zionists, but adamant that they define themselves as pro-Israel, and the organization officially calls itself a pro-Israel organization. I think they're just not willing to use the same lines that you'll hear over and over about the importance of a U.S.-Israel relationship and things of that nature. I think they're more interested in moving forward and having more honest discussions about Israeli policy in the West Bank. Okay, Jacob Tal, thank you so much for joining me today on this uh, nuanced discussion. I really appreciate hearing your thoughts. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.